Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. My guest for this episode is Gavin Essler, and we'll be talking about English nationalism and his book, How Britain Ends. But before we do, this podcast is coming up on its fifth anniversary. I've been able to keep it going with the help of a tiny but dedicated group of listeners who have made donations. If you are one of them, many thanks. And if you like what you've heard on the podcast and haven't made a donation, please go to the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a contribution. They really do help. Now, Gavin Essler was for many years a BBC News correspondent and then presenter of the Beeb's flagship current affairs program, Newsnight. Since leaving the BBC, he's been writing books, most recently, How Britain Ends, Nationalism and the Birth of Four Nations. Resurgent nationalism, of course, has been a political theme in a lot of countries in recent years, and I began by asking Essler what made him decide to write about the English variety. It's been something I've been thinking about for a number of years, and since uh, probably about 2015, when in the United Kingdom elections that year, each of the constituent parts of the United Kingdom voted for a different big party. So in Scotland, they voted for the SNP. Northern Ireland, the biggest party was the Democratic Unionist Party. In Wales, it was the Labour Party. In England, it was the Conservative Party. And because England is 84% of the population and there's the, the elephant in the bed, uh, we all ended up with a Conservative government, which Scotland had not voted for since 1955. And the other thing that happened that year was 3.8 million people voted for UKIP, for the, the you know, Get Us Out of Europe party. And they got only one seat under our peculiar British system. And that, the guy who took that seat, Douglas Carswell, then quit the party and they got nothing. And I thought, this is a ridiculous state of affairs when we pretend to be a United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland four different parties, four different directions, and a fifth party, which gets nearly four million votes and gets nothing. There's something wrong. So that was that was the seed of it, but I couldn't figure out uh, exactly how to tackle it for a couple of years after that. But while UKIP, wholly dedicated to getting Britain out of the EU, did not manage to get a parliamentary seat, despite the size of its vote, because in the UK there's no proportional representation, the party that wins the most votes in a particular seat wins the seat, and whichever party has the most seats in Parliament forms the government, UKIP got a better prize. Then Prime Minister David Cameron decided to hold a referendum on Britain's EU membership. David Cameron offering a Brexit vote, which took place in 2016, re-emphasised that the different constituent parts of the United Kingdom were going in different directions because Scotland and Northern Ireland were very firmly in favour of staying in the EU. England decided to leave. And it was, as a friend of mine said, a Scotsman, an Englishman, an Irishman go into a bar, the Englishman wants to go home, so everybody has to go home. Uh, and plus, in Scotland, they had been told in 2014, when uh, the Scots voted on an independence referendum, that the only way to stay in the U European Union is to vote no to independence. And actually, that proved to be exactly the opposite. Because what happened was David Cameron saw the threat to his Conservative Party from the right, from UKIP, Nigel Farage and others, and he decided that he would 
in effect neutralize the English nationalist vote because that's largely what it was and it completely failed and instead of doing that what has happened subsequently is that the Conservative Party has become a much more English nationalist party and by the summer of 2019 I was in Edinburgh which is where I grew up and I was hanging out with a lot of my old friends at Edinburgh Book Festival and I was astonished at those who I'd always regarded as people who'd vote no for independence had switched and decided they would vote yes for independence. As one said, I'm Scottish, I'm British, I'm European. And those, I will say politicians in London, but he used a much ruder word, uh, are taking us out of the European Union against our will. And then a couple of months later, I happened to be in Belfast. I've got family there. Uh, they are of Ulster Protestant stock and they tend to vote for the union. They're unionists. And when I was in Belfast, it came a couple of days after Boris Johnson had met the Irish Prime Minister and he threw a hundred years of Ulster unionism into the sea by declaring that he, he, he declared that the, the border in Ireland is no more significant than the border between Camden and Westminster, two London boroughs. Wow. <laughs> you know, apart from providing a lot of jokes to um, uh, Irish comedians on both sides of the border, he then moved the border into the Irish Sea, creating all the problems that we now, now see. But also, as again, somebody said to me on that trip in Belfast, Mrs. Thatcher always said Northern Ireland was as British as Finchley. Now we're as British as France. Now you can agree or disagree with that analysis, but that is very much how unionists felt. Half a century ago, when I did a junior year abroad at an English university, my friends all identified as English. When I moved back, as it turns out permanently in 1985, it was to a country called Britain. English identity was a very quiet thing, with the exception of the hooligans who followed the English football team and laid waste to city centres all over Europe whenever the English team were playing abroad. The two referenda called by Cameron for Scottish independence and to leave the EU have rekindled the idea of Englishness in an intensely nationalistic sense, as opposed to English patriotism. Patriotism is about us. It's about England. It's about, uh, you, you know, what's great about this country. And it is a great country. Nationalism tends to have, certainly on its edges, its toxic edges, a feeling that, that it's about them and othering other people. And nationalism has been on the rise within England. There's been greater identification with being English, which is fine, of course. Um, but the, the, the nationalism which has been on the rise has been there's something wrong in our country and it's all got to do with them. And them, uh, that includes the European Union, who apparently have been manipulating everything and preventing us doing some things that we otherwise could do. And we call that sovereignty. And we want our sovereignty back as if it's like virginity. It's some kind of thing that's either intact or otherwise. And then there's a kind of resentment about Scotland and Northern Ireland because they are taking our money. Well, I, you know, I don't agree with those views, but that's been part of the roots of it. Englishness and Britishness were always elided. For example, the great British imperialist Cecil Rhodes 120 years ago said, ask any man what he would rather be, and 99% of men would say English. Well, you know, if you tried that in a Glasgow pub in 1900, or a Belfast pub, or a Cardiff pub, I don't think you would have got that response. But he elided Britishness and Englishness, and, and that 
happened for a very long time. The elision is not quite there now, and more English people are patriotic, and they like the flag, they like the England football team, and that's great. But this, in terms of its political expression by the Conservative Party, when Boris Johnson says, I'm a one nation conservative, my friends in Scotland said, yeah, uh, but that one nation is only England. And when that happens, that unbalances a union. And the other thing I think is, uh, is true is that the United Kingdom, which reinvented itself every 100 years since 1603 in different ways with different names, needs another reinvention. The last time was 1921 when Ireland left, and it was a real shock to the political system. I think Scotland is just about on the brink of trying to leave, obviously, and may actually do it, and that will be another bigger shock, big shock. So the question is, who speaks, if anyone, for the United Kingdom? Who speaks for the United Kingdom in England in particular? Who is the Margaret Thatcher, Winston Churchill figure who really speaks for the Union? And I can't find anyone because it's certainly not Boris Johnson. When he, when he, he doesn't travel very, very well, and he doesn't even travel very well to the north of England. Recent history plays a role in this. In 1997, the Labour Party, led by Tony Blair, won a general election in a landslide. The party made good on its pledge to devolve some powers to the constituent parts of the United Kingdom. Scotland got its own parliament, Wales would have an assembly, and following the Good Friday Agreement, Northern Ireland regained its assembly. England, however, was left out of the devolution process. The question really is whether it was wrong to devolve more power to Scotland, Northern Ireland or Wales, or whether it was wrong not to think about England and devolving more power to England. And I come down on that side. I come down on the side of people who, who point out that England is the most centralised polity in Europe. It, it, you know, the French have devolved since the sort of Napoleonic times, under Mitterrand and subsequently, they have devolved and devolved and devolved more power. Now, not in a national nationalist sense, uh, you know, they have minor problems with Breton nationalism and so on. But uh, they just said, you know, uh, we, we'll have a lot of local mayors and local mayors will have quite a bit of power. And we will also have, uh, Germany's done the same thing, we will have a kind of um, constitution. We'll, we'll write down who does what. So what we have done is we have sort of federalised by stealth, by giving more powers to Scotland, Northern Ireland and uh, Wales. England has got nothing. England has lost out. And so you could say, oh, let's take back all those powers from, from the devolved governments. Or you could say, as I argue in the book, let's not do that. Let's dis discover uh, that big English cities and policies, I'm not, not saying exactly how to divide it up. That's a tricky question. But Germany works because Prussia was divided up. Prussia was a real problem. And now the Federal Republic of Germany is a great success because they've got a basic law. England is a great country, but people have a democratic deficit and they can see that in Scotland that isn't true and no wonder people are resentful. Well, since Gavin has brought up the F word, federalism, about a year before the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, I made a half-hour program for BBC Radio 4 on federalism. And you can listen to it in the archive section at the FRDH website. And it noted 
that arguably the first modern federalist state was the United Kingdom, created by the Act of Union between England and Scotland back in 1707. Yes, but if you look at that period around 1707, couple of things. Uh, Scotland was virtually bankrupt because they invested a lot of money in an imperial adventure in Central America called the Darien Scheme, which was a total disaster. And the Scots argued that there should be some kind of written constitution. At the time, Scots argued for this. And this was turned down in England, who wanted to do, do the, you know, continue with the sort of common law, the accretion of new laws and so on. And, and they, they won out. I think looking back in it, uh, there was a formalization of the the union of the crowns in the union of parliaments but there was also a feeling that how does this actually work and the reason it worked was scotland got to keep its own education system its own legal system uh, it's effectively its own culture and that is still true and that's great that's how that is actually how federalism should work and if you fast forward to 2014 and what scots were offered by alex salmond and the scottish national party what's interesting is it was it was in the press in London, it was constantly billed as a breakup of the union and so on. If you look at it, Salmon said, we will keep the Queen, we will keep the pound, we will keep the Bank of England, and we will keep some kind of defence relationship. That is, you could call it confederalism or federalism, but it's a thinking about a federal relationship. And neither side including the Scottish National Party, wanted to use the F word then because they were, they were talking about independence. It was a very codependent or interdependent kind of uh, 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 independence. So my challenge to unionists in the book is, what does the union mean anymore? Because at the time of 1707, it was Protestantism, empire and war. They've gone. I hope war is gone anyway. Now, if there's a union, what's it about? And my challenge to nationalists is, what do you really mean about independence? Because the bits of this country are not going to be towed into different directions into the middle of the, the Atlantic. So how are we going to work it? And that's a challenge to England as well, because if there's a border between Scotland and England, it will be eventually an EU border. And we've seen how brilliantly that's been handled by uh, our, our dear prime minister in Northern Ireland. So there's a big challenge for England ahead and Scotland may due to carelessness at Westminster, become independent. All this talk of nations, just what is a nation? A nation is an imagined community that thinks it's a nation. And uh, civic nationalism, uh, it's not my definition, but it's, it's by Gelmer and some others from the 1980s. Civic nationalism is an outward looking nationalism which sees the nation's place in relation to other states. And that is I think that's certainly the definition that the First Minister of Scotland would use. And you see it in operation, for example, in their attitude in Scotland to migrants. It was very interesting that compared to the hostile environment, which was an official policy against so-called illegal migrants uh, in, uh, from Theresa May, the former British Prime Minister, in Scotland, the attitude has been, well, I was born in Glasgow, I brought, brought up in Edinburgh. If you're a Glaswegian, you call yourself a Ouija. And in Glasgow, uh, when uh, people have, when the Home Office, the London-based Home Office has tried to evict people from Scotland, uh, they're called refugees. And Scots came out and actually rebelled. 
quite recently in the south side of Glasgow. They didn't let the Home Office take some of their neighbours. So, and, and this was Scots of all, all backgrounds and all, all races and all religions. So there's a very, very different attitude. And Scottish nationalism, when I was growing up, was very narrow, was very introverted and was all about the other. It was big, bad England. There's obviously still some people who are presumably are racist or just anti-English, but that has changed. And it is seeing Scotland, which is a nation which thinks itself a nation, which is basically all you can, you can do, and sees its place in Europe and in the world. Whereas England faces a really hard choice because if that does happen and Scotland does join the EU, then from the Irish Republic to Poland, from Scandinavia to Spain, England will be surrounded by a bloc of countries. And that was the sort of thing that gave Henry VIII nightmares, <laughs> James I nightmares, you know, uh, basically every English monarch and English government since the, since the 16th century and before is worried about, was worried about being surrounded by variously hostile European powers. So this is, a, this is absolutely a turning point for our country. It may, it may, be, may be quite a long turning point, but people who feel themselves to be a nation and do not feel that they're represented within the United Kingdom are going to be very difficult to silence unless there's some really hard thinking about what keeps us together. But in some ways, what's happening in England is less about nationalism and more about the utter neglect of parts of the country by London. In the early part of the last decade, I was up in the northeast of England on Teesside to report on inequality. Middlesbrough is a city that is like an American Rust Belt city. Once a center of steel manufacturing and coal mining, its industry collapsed decades ago. Everybody who could get out did, and there is something very forlorn about the place. It was just before the Scottish referendum, and more than one person bitterly joked, if the Scots go, I hope they take us with them. Well, uh, I don't know whether they're right or wrong uh, in that, but I think that the relationship between the north of England and Scotland has it, it, is quite a warm one. It's a very close one, and in some ways it's a lot closer than the relationship. I've just come back from, as it happens, Northumbria. Uh, which is right on the Scottish borders. And very similar sentiments were, I mean, they were said quite jokingly, but uh, not so jokingly. And you're absolutely right. Uh, that, you know, look at it this way. We have got a government which seemed to suggest that Brexit was going to be the answer to many of these problems. It obviously isn't. The Brexit in particular is going to be proved to be the wrong answer to some of the right questions, which is how do you make this country fairer? How do you make people, particularly in the north of England and the Midlands, who feel left out, feel they have a bigger stake in this country? And I, I can only think that the answer has to be more devolution of powers to those people. The 2016 Brexit vote was an expression of anger that surprised a lot of people. The vote for Donald Trump a few months later was roughly the same. Gavin Esler was the BBC's correspondent in the U.S. back in the 1990s and wrote a book called The United States of Anger about how angry Americans were in the time of Bill Clinton's presidency. Now, a lot of people look back at that decade as a halcyon time, but he saw what was underneath that. I wrote the book, I think, in 1997-98, and what I saw was a complete disjunction between the America I read about and I loved, which was the most successful country in the world, the unipolar world, the great superpower, the stock market's taken off, home ownership is up and unemployment is low, 
it, this is the richest country in the world. American culture has taken over from, from hip hop to movies to whatever. We all watch it. That's the America that I thought I lived in. When I traveled and I traveled to 48 of the 50 states, I heard time after time, we can't keep up with the payments. Our healthcare is terrible. We can't afford healthcare. I'm gonna lose my house if I get sick because my mortgage is, uh, is, is too expensive. Uh, these people in Washington don't understand us. So there was a disjunction between what I called in the, in the book, um, America in the aggregate. That's uh, all the statistics about America and America and the anecdotal, which was the lives that people led. Uh, I have to say that while the book sold well in Europe, it was rubbished in America. <laughs> One guy said, who is this blankety blank Brit telling us our country stinks? I didn't tell you the country stinks. I, I was trying to say that people are angry for real reasons. And um, yeah, you're right. I didn't mention Donald Trump, but I did say in the book that at some point, somebody may arise who will capitalize on these grievances and it won't be it won't be pretty basically i couldn't have imagined it would be as bad as as trump the same is true now in britain it's the same thing it's the disjunction between all the nonsense that is spoken at westminster about this sort of english exceptionalism uh, uh you know the, the, boris johnson has said we're going to make britain the greatest country in the world well, what, what does that mean why is that what kind of ambition is that it should just be the greatest britain in the world it, we, it, there's a huge disjunction between the rhetoric of the politicians in power in in london and their competence and an understanding of the lives that people lead and i, I say we've just i've just been uh, the north of England, I've been in the East Midlands, and I've been looking at some of the places that have that really have been left behind. And so whatever the statistics about Britain in the in the aggregate, some of those aren't very good either. If you look at healthcare outcomes, if you look at poverty and sickness, poverty and coronavirus, we are not doing very well. And what we get from Washington uh, at the time was a degree of complacency in the 1990s and what we're getting from Westminster is a degree of profound complacency about the, the state we're in. It's interesting how the two very different countries, the US and the UK, Anglo-America as I call them, seem to be faced with the same problem. Antiquated constitutions, clearly in need of revision for the 21st century, but with an absence of goodwill among politicians and the people who elect them to negotiate new arrangements. Germany's constitution only came out of the country's utter destruction in World War II. Is that what it takes to get people to sit down and write new arrangements? That's not a cheery thought. You know, Michael, I agree with every single word that you said except for one thing which is i think it's even worse <laughs> because i think that two two slightly different but but related points one is there is profound complacency within the english political classes that we've just muddled through for a thousand years so it will be all right that is a lie they have never muddled through Every single thing that happened, including, for example, 1921, when uh, about 22% of the United Kingdom seceded from the United Kingdom, it's called Ireland, or the 26 counties of Ireland, 22%. That wasn't muddling through. That was after not just World War I, but a brutal Anglo-Irish war as well, and then a civil war in Ireland. I mean, that is not muddling through. 
so there's the, the, the sense that we can just continue to muddle through. And I think allied to that is the fact that, and I hate to say it because I, I argue in the book pretty much along the lines that you've just suggested, is that constitutional reform is boring. <laughs> I mean, it's really important, but when you come out and say, and I'm in favor of it, uh, you know, the system for electing a Scottish, Welsh and Northern Ireland Parliament is essentially three different, slightly different types of a PR system, proportional representation. You get 40% of the vote, you get 40% of the seats. Um, this current government's got 43.6% of the votes and has got a huge landslide majority because of the first past the post system. So 57% of us didn't vote for them. And the same was true, actually, of the Blair governments. Blair got, well, I, when I talked to uh, uh, an English constitutional expert who used to work for the government and said, why have we never had a PR system, a, a fairer voting system? Why is constitutional change so difficult? And he said to me, 179. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, 179 was Tony Blair's majority of seats with about 44% or something of the vote in 1997. And he would have been in favor of possibly major constitutional reform uh, had that not quite happened. But it's very difficult for politicians to kick away the ladder up which they have risen. And that is what bedevils it. So you're absolutely right. Agree with everything you say. But selling it to politicians and then selling it to the great British public is going to be very difficult unless there is uh, something fairly nasty. I hope not as nasty as has happened in France and Germany over the years. Last question. Brief answer. Will the UK exist by the end of this decade? No. That's too short. Why? Because uh, the tectonic plates have already shifted. Uh, the strategy for dealing with Scottish nationalism in London appears to be don't let them have a vote and they'll just go away. Um, Scots, the two words that in old Scots that work for most of my compatriots, including myself, is thrown, which means really stubborn, and scunnered, which means sickened. And I just think that's unsustainable. I think the position in Northern Ireland, I'm not saying there'll be a United Ireland, that's fraught with difficulties, but the position in Northern Ireland is very, very difficult to, to, to see how that's going to be resolved. And thirdly, the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, a very kind of quiet, unassuming, but very competent politician, Labour politician, a unionist, says that the union is fundamentally broken. Uh, Gordon Brown, a unionist says it's a, we're either going to be a reform state or a failed state. And the conservative former chancellor, George Osborne, says Boris Johnson could go down in history as the worst prime minister ever, worse than Lord North, who lost the American colonies. So I'm, I, I'm in good company when I say I just think this is unsustainable over the decade. Gavin Esler, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Gavin Esler for making time to speak with me. His book, again, is called How Britain Ends, English Nationalism and the Rebirth of Four Nations. And his America book is called The United States of Anger. And you can hear more, lots more about Britain, Donald Trump, history, religion, philosophy, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And let me ask you again, Please make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.